If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 17, Exodus chapter 17. And uh, I want to make mention, as I do from time to time, that if you don't have a Bible today, we want you to have a copy. You know, it's, uh, it's God's Word. We can trust everything that's in there. And uh, if you don't have a copy of it, uh, you can go buy your own if you'd like, which is, which is a great thing. Or you can just let us give you one out in the lobby. It's nothing fancy, but it is just a paperback version of God's, God's Word. We'd love for you to have one. So if you don't have a copy today, be sure to stop by the lobby desk on your way out and snag one up. But Exodus chapter 17 is, uh, is where we're going to be this morning. So we're in this series called What's in a Name? And what we've been looking at is uh, basically the names of God that we read of in Scripture. Not every single one of them, but some of the more prominent ones, some of the ones that I think are more uh, maybe applicable for us where we are today specifically in our setting. So we've been looking at a number of the different names of God and uh, really just learning more about Him. And the reason this is important is because when you think about names, names identify us, right? Names reveal uh, something to to another person when they know your name. If somebody learns your name, you're easily able to be identified from that point forward just by your name. They're identifiers, they're revealers. When, when you share your name with somebody, it's kind of like you're giving them an invitation to know you uh, better, to know you more, more deeply, right? When you say, hey, my name is Brooks, you know, don't do that unless that's your name, insert your name there, right? But my name is Brooks, then you're, you're kind of inviting them, hey, come and get to know me, right? Here's my name. I, this is now my personal name. I'm not anonymous to you anymore. Well, when we look at the names of God in Scripture, a lot of that applies that when we learn another name for God, as it comes out in the Old Testament, whether that's the Hebrew language or in the New Testament, in the Greek language, when we learn a name for God in Scripture, what He's doing there is He's identifying Himself a little more clearly. He's the same God all along, right? One true God. But when he rolls out another name in Scripture, we learn a little bit more about him. He reveals something else about us that we may have missed up to that point. And at the same time, it's him wanting to be known by you. It's it's like God, in a sense, you know, uh, is extending the hand saying, hello, my name is... And he wants you to know him in that way. So knowing the names of God are important because it helps us to grow in understanding him. And the more we understand him, the more we often at the same time understand ourselves. And so this whole series, What's in a Name, is what we've been looking at over the, the, these past few weeks. So we've rolled out a few names all along right up to this point. The first name we looked at was the name Elohim. It comes very early in the scriptures. Four words in, in the beginning, God created. And that name is the Hebrew name uh, Elohim. And it just means that God is a God of power. There's more wrapped up in that, but just remember that Elohim equals power. God is a God of all power. He created everything that we see. A second name that we learned in this series is the name Yahweh. It's the most uh, personal name for God that we read of in the Bible. Sometimes you'll see it translated as Jehovah in your Bible. Uh, I won't go into all the details of why that's the case, but Yahweh, Jehovah, both renderings are that same Hebrew word, right? And it just refers to the fact that God is preexistent. He has no beginning point. He has no end point. He always was, is, and always will be. But at the same time, that name Yahweh is the most personal name for God. He reveals it over 6,000 times in the Old Testament, and it's his way of saying, I want you to know me in relationship, the name Yahweh. We also looked a couple of weeks ago at the name Adonai, and that name Adonai for God kind of, kind of encapsulates the fact that he is the owner, he is master, he is ruler, he is in charge of everything. Sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes even in our verbiage, right, the language we use, we lose sight of that. Even just this morning, 
I made the comment to some folks up here before the first service started talking about my house, right? And uh, it's not my house. It's God's house. I mean, really down to it, nothing we have is literally ours. It's all God's. It all belongs to him. And that name Adonai kind of captures that, that he is the owner. He is the master. He is the ruler. He is Lord, right? And he's shown that through his name in the Old Testament, the name Adonai. And then last Sunday, we looked at another name, a less, a less well-known name, the name Elkanah, which comes out of the Hebrew language, which means jealous God. And uh, that doesn't mean that God's jealous of you, right? You don't have something that God wishes he had. He doesn't want your looks, right? Or your paycheck or the car you drive or the family you have, right? He owns all that anyway, right? God is jealous for you. He's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. He loves you. He wants his best for your life, but it's always going to be on his terms. And so last Sunday, we looked at that name, Elkanah. Well, this Sunday, we're going to add one more name to the mix. And again, it comes out of the Old Testament. And so it's going to sound very Hebrew, right, in language, because it is a Hebrew name for God, one that we're going to see here in Exodus 17. And that name is Yahweh Nisi, Yahweh Nisi. You see it spelled on the overhead there behind me, Yahweh. Or maybe you've seen it listed as Jehovah Nisi. It'd be the same name that God reveals of himself here in Exodus chapter 17. So it's, it's interesting, this particular name, because it's only found one place in the Bible. God only really reveals this name. Now, the word Nisi, we'll unpack that in just a moment uh, as we move through this message. That's used about 20 times, but the name Yahweh Nisi is used one place in the Bible. You're going to see it right here in Exodus 17. But before we jump in, let me give you a little bit of a backstory. Let me sort of catch you up. Let me pull you into the story and into the context of how God is going to reveal himself as Yahweh Nisi. So you remember in the book of Genesis that God creates, right? Elohim, he creates, he creates everything we see. He he creates people. Ultimately, you are going to be created by God. You are a creation. You bear the fingerprints of God. Now, it doesn't mean that you're a child of God until you give your life to Jesus, but every one of us is a creation of God. And so God creates in the book of Genesis, and all through the book of Genesis, you see him begin to, to, uh, to raise up leaders that will lead people and point people to himself. Well, by the end of the book of Genesis, you've got a group of people, the Israelite people, who are kind of like pulled out and set apart. They're God's chosen people. And at the end of the book of Genesis, you've got about 70, maybe a, maybe a few more, it depends on the reading of it. You've got about 70 people, give or take, who were part of what you could say are the kind of the early formation of the Israelite people. And they're living in the land of Egypt. Life is good. I mean, they, they are kind of at the top of the hill. I mean, things are going great for them. Well, by the time uh, uh, that Exodus begins, the second book of the Bible, uh, those Israelite people are now up to about what many would say two million strong. They have grown through, these, through those years. Uh, they have expanded in size, and they're still in Egypt, but they're not there as honored guests anymore. They're there basically as slaves, and they're working under Pharaoh, the, king, the, the, the leader of Egypt. They're working under, under his leadership, and they are in forced labor. They don't want to be there anymore. They know that God has something better for them called the promised land, and yet the time is not right for God to lead them into that land he's already promised. 
Well, he raises up Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is going to be the man, right? Moses is going to be the guy who's going to stand up in front of Pharaoh and say, let my people go, or whatever that voice was that actor did. Who was that? Charlton Heston, I think, back in the day. And uh, Moses is going to stand there, and he's going to say, let my people go. And finally, uh, eventually, Pharaoh is going to listen, and he's going to let the people of God out, right? And they're going to, they're going to leave Egypt, no longer slaves. They're going to come to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's going to change his mind, come after him. And uh, ultimately, God's going to part that Red Sea. Man, it's going to be amazing. And he's going to part that Red Sea. And all of those Israelites, two million strong, most people uh, uh, would imagine, cross that Red Sea on dry ground. They come out on the other side side, and God brings great victory, and there they are in the wilderness, just a matter of just a short travel into the promised land from there. I mean, again, times are good. Well, ultimately, Israel will begin their trek across the wilderness, and they're going to learn a really, really important lesson, that they're not the only ones in that wilderness, that there are some other people that live there as well. And when they encounter those other inhabitants of that wilderness that stands between them and the promised land, those inhabitants are going to be accustomed to life in the desert. And they're going to be skilled at living in the desert. And they're not all going to be friendly. Most of them are going to be enemies. And they're not going to be happy that the people of God are in their territory. It's there that we jump in and we pick up in Exodus 17. And the first group that the people of Israel are going to encounter are a group of people called the Amalekites. And they were the baddest of the bad. And Israel gets to start off their trek across the wilderness towards the promised land by meeting up with them. It's in that context that God's going to reveal himself this one time in Scripture as Yahweh Nisi. So let's jump in. Exodus chapter 17. Hopefully you're up to speed now with where we are. Exodus chapter 17. Let's jump in in verse 8 and begin reading. So chapter 17, verse 8. So it says, Then Amalek came, and he fought against Israel at Rephidim. So let me just pause there for a moment, just one verse to kick things off. So you've got a picture now of Israel and uh, Israel is there in the wilderness. It's the very beginning stages of their trek across the wilderness. It's going to take ultimately 40 years. They don't know that yet. It's going to take them 40 years because of their own failure to trust in God and to obey him. But they're at the very front edge of this. And they're camping in a little area called Rephidim. We read of Rephidim, the chapter before, in chapter 16. And one of the things we know there from chapter 16 is that in Rephidim, they didn't have any water. And they were thirsty. You know how you get when you're really thirsty. They, remember that commercial, was it Snickers? You know, you're not yourself when you're hungry. They, they weren't themselves, I'm sure, when they were thirsty either. God had to do a miracle and give them water. But in Rephidim, it, it was desert living. And they weren't accustomed to this. They came from Egypt. They were just in Egypt not long before this. And yes, they were slaves, but at least they had food to eat. And at least they had water to drink. That was life for them. Now they're in the middle of the desert. And not only are they in the middle of the desert, but we read here that they were having to fight against the Amalekites. Now these were descendants of Esau. We won't go into the whole backstory of them, but let's just say that they were enemies that would hound Israel for centuries. The Amalekites were good at what they did. They were fierce warriors. They were accustomed to living in the desert. The people of Israel were not. They probably had some formation 
for battle. They probably had weapons. The people of Israel did not. The people of Israel, right, again, remember, they had been living in Egypt not long before this. And as they stretch out across that desert, you've got a couple of million. You've got the sick. You've got the healthy. You've got the young. You've got the old. You, it's just sort of stretching out like this big nomadic caravan trucking across the desert. And then all of a sudden, what you find here is that the people of Amalek attack them. Unprovoked, they come against them. Now Moses, who wrote Exodus, is also going to write Deuteronomy. And when you read Deuteronomy, it's at the other end of this 40 years in the desert. Looking back, look at what Moses says. You don't have to turn here, but just take a look at this passage, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Look at what Moses says here in this book. He says, looking back 40 years, he says, remember, he's looking back to this event. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and he did not fear God. This is who the Amalekites were. They see this couple of million nomadic travelers who aren't accustomed to that land, and they've got their sick, and they've got their young, and they've got their weak, and they're just sort of straggling across the desert. They're weary, they're tired, and the Amalekites say, perfect time for us to attack. And God says, remember, remember what they did to you. And let me just say, chances are you're not going to be trucking across a desert anytime soon. Chances are you're not going to be in exactly this same circumstance. But man, people find themselves in this setting in life every single day. And I'd be willing to say there are people right here, right now, that understand what it was like for the people of Israel. And the enemy was not the Amalekites for you, but you have faced your own battle that was unprovoked that you look at and say, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do to, to, to lose a job that I've had for decades? What did I do to deserve this? I didn't see this coming. I'm not ready for this battle. Maybe you say, I, I didn't know he was going to you know, hook up with somebody that, uh, outside of our family that he's not married to and then leave me here high and dry. I didn't see that coming. And it's a battle that you didn't prepare for. It's a battle that you never even imagined that you would have to face. You say, I've been to the doctor for 25 years getting annual physicals, and why does this one have to reveal these results? And you're in the battle for your life. It was unprovoked. You didn't have any idea it was coming, totally out of the blue, caught you off guard, and you're finding yourself having to scratch and claw, and you don't know how you're going to make it through the other side. That's where Israel was. And because this book is a timeless book, that's often where we sometimes find ourselves still even today. Interesting how this story has application for us all these years later. Verse 9, Moses continues in the story back in Exodus 17. So Moses said to Joshua, he said, choose men for us and go out. <laughs> it's, it's funny to me, he says, choose men. They didn't even have an army, right? So they, he didn't say to Joshua, hey, call up the army. You know, get out there and get the army pulled together. Joshua would have said, what army? We don't have an army. What's an army? Right? They, they are not accustomed to this kind of stuff in life. They're not accustomed to being attacked. They're not accustomed to living in the desert. And so jo uh, Moses says to Joshua, choose men for us. And I don't know what the criteria was. I'd love to see the list, right? You know, choose people like this. I assume it was something like just, uh, you know, Joshua's probably saying, well, what kind of men do you want me to choose? He's probably saying, I don't know, choose men that like, like stink, you know, and they're just mean and they're ugly looking and just choose those kind of people, but just get some men. And he says, choose men, go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow, Moses says, 
<laughs> this is great. You'd love this kind of a leader. Tomorrow, I'm going to station myself on the top of the hill, right? You're going to be down in the valley fighting this thing out, and you're going to get your guys together. I'm going to be up on the top of the hill, and I'm going to have the staff of God in my hand. Now, this is an interesting scenario. So you got Moses, the leader. You got Joshua. Joshua's going to get pretty famous later on in the Bible. He's going to have a whole book that bears his name. He's going to go in and just clean house at Jericho. He's got a little song sung about him that, you know, you, you sang when you were a kid. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Right? He's going to get a little song about him. This is the first time we see Joshua really in the Bible. And at this point, he's not that Joshua yet. He's the right-hand man for Moses. So Moses tells his right-hand man, Joshua, go pick out these guys because we're, we're, we got to fight, man. We, we, we have no option. And there are times in your life when you find yourself having to scratch and claw and battle and fight because you have no other option. You can't lay over or you will get rolled over. There are times in life we have to decide, am I going to fight this or am I not? Sometimes fighting means we step back and we take our hands off. Other times fighting means we jump into the mix and we do whatever we can trusting God along the way completely. So it says choose some men. Go out and fight. And Moses says, I'm going to be at the top of the hill, and I'm going to have the staff of God in my hand. Now, that may sound a little odd. What is the staff of God? Well, remember back in, earlier in the story when Moses would come to Pharaoh, and he would say to Pharaoh, let my people go, right? And, and he would have with him at times a staff, and God would use that staff to do a, a miracle, right, that would show Pharaoh who God was. In fact, God used that staff in the very beginning with Moses to convince him that he, God, was in control, that he, God, had all power. It was that staff that Moses used when he stood there at the edge of the Red Sea and he held that staff up and the waters parted, right? And they parted so significantly, two million people could pass through on dry ground. It's that staff. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty, pretty cool thing to have, right? And I don't think Moses loaned it out to his kids to take to school and say, hey, look what I got. You know, it wasn't that kind of a staff. It wasn't a magic wand, right? This isn't something that had magical powers. This is important to the story that staff was just a visual reminder that the God of Israel has all all the power to be had, and that the God of Israel is completely and totally in charge. That's what that staff was a visual reminder of. And so Moses says, I'm going to go up to the top of the hill where I can be seen by the troops down in the valley below, and, and I'm going to hold this staff. It's not magical, but it's going to be the visual reminder to all of God's people down in the valley that when they see it held up high, that it's going to be that visual reminder that God is here, that God is in charge, and that God is going to intervene for us. And so he goes to the top of the hill, and he carries with him that staff, and it's there ultimately that he plants himself. Let's move on to the next verse, verse 10. And so Joshua did as, Mo as Moses told him, and he fought against Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. 
So you got two more people introduced to this true story. Joshua goes down to the valley so that he can lead the troops that he's assembled to fight against Amalek, who's attacked them unprovoked. On the top of the hill now, you've got Moses, you've got Aaron, his brother, and then you've got her, who is Caleb's son. Remember Joshua, Caleb, this is Caleb's son. And so these three are going to be important. They're going to the top of the hill. They've got the staff of God in Moses' hand, and that's where you find themselves. It's an interesting battle plan, but this is what God has orchestrated. Next verse, verse 11. And so it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? And that's just captivating when you think about it. And I don't understand exactly why it worked this way. I have a, I have a, a suspicion, right, that I'll share with you in a second. But, but the Bible doesn't give any more information than that. It just says when Moses' hand was up with that staff, then uh, uh, Israel was taking care of business, right, and uh, winning the battle. And when his hand came down with the staff, then ultimately Amalek, the enemy, would, uh, would, would gain victory and they would begin to win. Now, you could almost have this picture, you know, I wonder if it had been you, probably, right? Or me, we probably would have had the staff up and it's like, whoa, put it down. Whoa, up again. Whoa, look at there. Hey, whoa, we're winning. Whoa, we're losing. Hey, look at this. You know, and uh, hey, Aaron, come over here. Take a look at this. It doesn't tell us that's what Moses did, right? Hopefully he didn't because people's lives were at stake. But it's an interesting scenario. When the staff is high, they win. When the staff is low, they lose. Maybe a part of that was when the people in the valley where the battle was raging saw the staff, they were reminded that our God is here and our God is powerful. Had they looked up to that hilltop and Moses is slumped over a rock dead, it would have been a significant message to see that and the staff broken in pieces. It was a visual reminder. It wasn't about the staff. The staff didn't have magical powers. It was a visual reminder that in the midst of our battle, God is here. And in the midst of our battle, God has all power and God is in control. You move a little bit further in that story, and we find that Moses, however, is going to need some assistance. Moses is going to need people to come alongside of him because Moses is going to get weary. Let's look on to the next verse, verse 12 in this passage. Moses' hands were heavy, and so they took a stone and they put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other, and thus his hands were steady until the sun set. And so Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. A couple of principles that come out of this particular story. Principle number one, you may want to jot this down, that these were God's people down there in that valley. And because they were God's people then, that meant that this was also God's battle. 
These were God's people in the valley having to face this enemy that came in unprovoked. And because they were God's people, then the battle became God's battle to fight. It's not much different for you that if you have a relationship with God and you find yourself in the midst of a battle and you've given your life to Jesus and you have a relationship with God that's never going to go away, never going to be taken from you, can never be lost. Every time you step into a battle that you didn't see coming, every time you lose that job or get that bad health report, every time those finances run out, every time that marriage issue pops up and you're having to sludge through some high water in the midst of your marriage or your parenting or whatever it may be, every single time you face that, if you have a relationship with God, if you've given your life to Jesus, listen, because you belong to God, that battle belongs to God as well. And he's the God who has all power and he's there with you and he wants to walk with you and he wants to fight that battle with you and he wants to help there uh, in the midst of that battle so that you can ultimately know him more deeply and ultimately be able to follow the plan that he has for your life. You know, David understood this. David understood that because he belonged to God, then his battles belonged to God as well. Remember when David stepped up against the the giant Goliath? Remember, he stepped up into that scene and and saw the leader tried to give him his armor. David said, this armor is no good. This is your armor. It's not my armor. This isn't going to fit. This isn't going to work. And he said, just take it back. All I need, David says, is a sling and a stone. And so he goes into this battle against this almost 10-foot-tall giant. You remember the story. And David walks into this battle with, with Goliath. And, man, he talks some serious trash talk to this giant before he ultimately takes him down. In fact, look at what he says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 46 and 47. Look at this story from David's experience with the Lord and the battles that he faced. He says to Goliath, this is a giant almost 10 feet tall for crying out loud. He says, this day, he says to him, the Lord, that's all caps, that means the, the, the Hebrew name for God there is Yahweh, a preexistent, a God who knows us in relationship. He says, this day, the Lord will deliver you uh, up into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will remove your head from you. That's some serious smack talk right there, right? Imagine two teams at, 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 a, at, you know, at, at a, the 50-yard line before the game starts, right? And one of them says this to the other guy. Now, shake hands. Have a good game, <laughs> you know? This is serious. I mean, this is big time right here. David says, this is what I'm going to do to you. And then he says, and I'm going to give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, right? You've defied him. You have rejected him. He's about to prove that he's here, that he's real. In the next verse, verse 47, he says, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. And before he ever slung one stone at Goliath, David told him, here's what I'm going to do and here's the way it's going to end. And the reason it's going to go this way is not because of me, it's going to be because this battle is, is the Lord's and I belong to him. And he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And man, I'm telling you, I don't know what battle you face today, but if you have a relationship with Jesus and you've turned from your sin and you've surrendered your life to Christ, you might remember where you were when that happened. You might have been in a little old uh, country church somewhere with stained up carpet and, and it seemed like people weren't, you know, hadn't cleaned it in forever and ever and ever. But when you prayed on that little carpet and you gave your life to Jesus and you turned from your sins, man, I'm telling you, God made a commitment to you that day that will never end. 
And he made a commitment to you that I will never leave you and I'm never going to forsake you. And every time you walk through the high water, I will be there with you. Does it mean that everything, every battle turns out the way we always want it? Not every time. Sometimes God has a bigger vision than we can even see. But he's there to fight our battles for us. David knew it. The people of Israel learned it as well. And when that staff was high and they looked, they looked there and they remembered who God was and they remembered who they were in light of God and his power, God ultimately brought victory. But at the same time, man, Moses reminds us, principle number two, sometimes life just makes us weary. Sometimes life makes us weary. It wasn't about Moses. He couldn't even hold the staff up himself in his own strength. He needed two people with him to help him with that task. There are times in your life, in the midst of the battles that you face, whether it's health-related, finance-related, relational, whether it's spiritual, whatever it may be, whether it's an addiction, whatever battle you face, there will be times that you will get weary and that you may just consider throwing in the towel. It's a blessing of the church, right? Moses had Aaron, Moses had her. For us today, on the other side of the cross, we have the Holy Spirit who lives within us, and we have a body of believers around us who help us to fight those battles as well. But there are times in our lives where life's battles just simply make us weary. Let's take a look at the end of this passage of Scripture, because remember, this is a series not about fighting battles. This is a series about the names of God. So let's take a look at verse 14 and verse 15. And so Lord, the Lord said to Moses, this is after the battle is done, Israel was victorious. The Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And so Moses built an altar and he named it, the Lord is my banner. That's interesting. The Lord is my banner. In Hebrew, Yahweh Nisi. It's funny that literally in this context, Moses is the one who gave the name Yahweh Nisi to an object. He named the altar this. And it doesn't mean that the people of Israel from that day forward would be expected to worship this altar. Look at what this altar had done. Now, the altar had done nothing. The altar didn't even exist when the battle was taking place. It was just a symbolic visual of yet another component and aspect of who God is that's wrapped up in this name, Yahweh Nisi, that means the Lord is my banner. And I know what you're probably thinking. You're thinking, I don't get the significance right? Because if I'm going into a battle, I don't really need a flag, right? Some banner, you know, to wave there before me. So what is the significance of this? Why would God say that his name is Yahweh Nisi, the Lord, my banner? Why would he even claim that? Well, you've probably seen a scene like this before. Take a look at this picture of a, kind of an old-time Roman guard going into battle, right? And, and you see the fella up front. He's got the what's called a standard. He, he's, he's carrying the colors. He's carrying the banner. And, and, and that banner would have been displayed in a place of prominence where every single member of those troops would be able to see it. 
And what that banner would serve in the context of a battle would have been as a rallying point. That when you're weary and that battle is at its fiercest, that flag, that standard, that banner that would be on a pole that would be held up high for every troop, uh, member of those troops to see would have been that rallying point, that reminder that says you're not in this alone. You are fighting for something bigger than you. And what God was saying to the people of Israel was when you face the battles of your life, whether it's throughout the rest of your time in this wilderness, whether it's when you go into the promised land and you have to take that land for your own. And I think what he's saying to us in the midst of the battles of our lives is that every single time that you as my child step into the midst of a battle, just remember I, the Lord, without beginning and without end, a God with all power, a God who is personal, a God who is Lord, master, ruler, owner of everything, just remember that I am your rallying point. And as you fix your focus on me, Ultimately, through the person of Jesus Christ, though you may feel like you win some and though you may feel like you lose some, you will ultimately always win when you follow the one true God who's in charge. The Lord, my banner. Yahweh, Nisi. And I can't help but think that for some today, You're not in the midst of a desert in the Sinai Peninsula, but you're in the battle of your own right. And I can't help but think you're going to go home today to Old Town or River Oaks or across the bridge into town or wherever you live and look up to some hill in the distance waiting for Moses because he's not going to be there. But in the same way, (laughs) in the battle that you face, whether it's that finance or that relationship or that challenge or trial or hardship, that the same God that you just read of in this true story is the same God who says, I'm here and I have all power and I'll fight for you and I'll fight with you if you know me and if you trust me. You know, the New Testament would kind of give a little bit of a shade and meaning to this nuance, if you will, to this in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. This is what I want to close with this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, I wonder if the writer of Hebrews wasn't thinking about, you know, Hebrews quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament Book, And I wonder if the writer of Hebrews wasn't thinking about this particular scene, this aspect of who God is as Jehovah Yahweh Nisi, when he wrote chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Look at what these words say. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance. Why? Because... Sometimes life makes us weary. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He is our banner. He is our hope. He is our encouragement. He is our rallying point. He is our God. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary 
and lose heart. To those in a battle today, you probably have a part to play, I'm sure, in how you fight that battle. But don't forget, you never fight alone if you belong to Jesus. And don't forget in the midst of that battle, because you're not alone, that if you're a child of God, well, that battle belongs to him as well. And don't forget that as you trust in him and as you follow him and as you let him lead and as you yield and surrender to him, with every step of direction that he gives, as you follow, he's going to ultimately glorify himself. And what you'll find is, is that when you find your hope and encouragement in him, when he is your rallying point, no matter how fierce the battle may become, on the inside you can have peace and you can have victory that reigns, but only through Jesus. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, no one looking around, how many of you would say, Brooks, just by raising your hand, Brooks, I feel like I'm one of those Israelites today, and I'm in a battle of my own making. And today I feel like I need some of that encouragement, and I need some of that hope, and I need that reminder that as a child of God, that this battle isn't solely mine to fight, but that he fights with me. How many of you would say, you know, Brooks, I'm in that kind of a battle today. Without saying a word, just slip your hand up, put it right back down. Any? Numerous hands up. Put those back down. For some of you, you've already given your life to Jesus. God's made so many promises to you. And today, those promises are there to bring hope and to bring encouragement to you. That he's never, he's never going to leave you. I mean, he didn't bring you this far in your Christian walk to just bail out and leave you on a curb and say, I'll see you when you get to heaven. God is here with you and he wants to mold you and to shape you. And there can be a day when you look back to this particular battle and say, you know what? It was in that season of my life that God taught me the greatest lessons about who he is. But he wants your focus to be on him. Others of you this morning, maybe you raised your hand. You're in the midst of a battle, but you're fighting that battle alone because you don't have a relationship with God. You've never come to that place where you've laid down your sin and said, Jesus, would you please forgive me and take over my life? You've never trusted him and what he did on the cross, how he died and how he rose for you. You've never surrendered your life and yielded to that. And But today, right where you sit, you can make the one choice that can change everything for you as you choose as an act of your will to say, Jesus, I give my life to you. Save me and keep me. And he'll do it. So God, probably numerous decisions that need to be made around this room this morning. Lord, life is hard. Life is not fair. But God, we thank you that you are a God who is just and a God who is perfect and a God who made us, who knows us better than we know ourselves. And that God, you've done everything needed for us to know you through Jesus. And that when we give our lives to you, Lord, you make promises to us that you will never go back on. And so Lord, no matter how hard the battle, we can always have hope, we can always have peace, we can even have joy because of you. So help us to follow you and to trust you today. Bless these decisions we ask in Jesus' name.